Well, if you've been with us um, online or in person over the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a kind of mini pre-season tour of the book of Haggai. Um, hope you've been enjoying it. I've been really um, getting a lot out of delving into this book. It's not a book I've known particularly well um, sort of previously. The, the first two sections that we've looked at of this book have actually been quite straightforward. Well, I think they've been fairly straightforward anyway in terms of reading them, understanding them, and then trying to work out what they mean. Um, this next bit is a bit more challenging. You'll see that when I read it in a moment. But just a little bit of a recap so we, we know where we've got to. The, the book of Haggai is written around the time when the exiles, the Jewish exiles who've been in Babylon, are starting to come home to Jerusalem. And they get home and um, they start to rebuild the temple, but then they get distracted and they start to think more about their panelled houses rather than building the Lord's house. And so the prophet Haggai has to come with the Lord's message and say, basically, your priorities are all wrong. We looked at this, I think it was two weeks ago. You need to start thinking again about putting God at the center. And so they listen, the people listen, and they start rebuilding the temple again. But another thing happens. The older people who remembered the old temple start to get a bit nostalgic, and they start to see that this new temple is not going to be as grand as the old one. And Haggai has to come again with a message from the Lord to say, I will do new things. I will do amazing things. And Haggai looks forward to even a time when Jesus will come and the fulfillments of all God's promises will take place through Jesus the Messiah. And now we move to a bit in the book and the scene has changed. We're now at what appears to be a very solemn service taking place in the temple, possibly while the temple is being rededicated at some point. We're not quite sure. The book doesn't quite say But it's quite interesting. There are two mini-sermons from Haggai. They're very short. We'll only look at one of them. The first one we'll look at in detail, but the second one is to Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah, basically telling him, you're going to be an ancestor of Jesus. So are you ready for the last bit of the book? Shall we dive in? If you've got a Bible, that's what we're reading. So it's Haggai chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 10. Has a slightly unnerving title, Blessings for a Defiled People. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. 
From this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Okay, let's pray, shall we? And then we'll open up those words together. Yeah, Lord, we we thank you again for, for all these accounts in your word of how you have been faithful to your people. How you have time and time again called people back to yourself. And we just pray as we look at what is quite an unusual passage in Haggai about things that don't immediately relate to us, that you will just apply what it is that you want us to hear to our hearts today. Yeah, Lord, keep us a people who are returning to you, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What is easier to pass on, a contagious illness or good health? It's a bit of a ridiculous question, isn't it? Um, If I have a streaming cold and I come and sit very close to you, this morning and sneeze and cough all over you, the chances are you might catch that cold. Can I have some medics in the room nodding at me? Is that, is that, Lester's nodding, that's a, a good sign. That is correct, isn't it? But if you have a stinking cold and I come and sit very close to you, next to you, and I'm well, I will not pass my wellness onto you with your cold. Is that also true? Yeah, I'm getting more nods here. My, my basic medical knowledge is correct. That doesn't happen, does it? Contagion only passes one way. You can't pass on good health. One of our regular dog walks is down by Manchester Ship Canal, and we think, actually, this is where Claire's bite happened last week, down by a a stream. And um, you walk down past this stream, and this stream is clear most of the time. But when it's rained, there is a pipe that I think drains a field and, and a road or something, and out of this pipe comes really disgusting, dirty water when it's rained. And the clear stream gets all mucky. Now, that works that way around, doesn't it? You pour mucky water into clean water, and the whole lot gets mucky. But it can't work the other way around. It's only a one-way street. In verses 10 to 14 of Haggai, um, we get a, a sermon preached and two questions asked that are really quite difficult to understand. And we're going to have to do a little bit of digging around this morning to try and squeeze some goodness out of these um, verses. But it is there. There is a lot here that I think God would say to us. And really what these verses are about is initially ceremonial purity, or we would call it holiness. It's a call to being a holy people. You see, it's one thing to build a physical temple. It's one thing to build a building. It's another thing to have hearts that want to respond to God. It's another thing to be changed on the inside. We can all build stuff, but it's another thing to be changed on the inside. So Haggai starts off by asking two questions. And these questions are referring back to the law, to Torah, to the first five books of the Old Testament. And will the people respond to actually the the meaning behind the law and not just the outer instructions? You see, God's law that was given in ancient times to Moses is perfect. The Bible tells us that right the way through. The problem is never the law. The problem is that our hearts won't allow us to keep it. And so time and time again, there are these calls back 
to obedience through the scripture. Now, we're privileged, aren't we? We live under grace because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We're not legally bound to to observe all those nth degrees of the law, but it doesn't stop the fact that the law is perfect. And so what Haggai does is he gets the priests together, and we have a highly interactive and delightfully short Bible study together when he asks two questions. So let's look at the first question. And it's really about this. Is holiness passed on? You can look up all about this, what this is to do with in Leviticus 6, if you've got time at some point. Um, But just to explain it very briefly, when a sin offering was made in, in the Old Testament, an animal would be killed and it would be eaten. But then what would happen is the priest would carry some of the meat in their garment. And as they carried the meat, the garment itself, that the holy meat, the meat that had been offered to the Lord, would become holy. So this question, it's a bit of a random one. It says, well, what happens if that meat then goes on to touch bread or stew, wine or royal, or some other food? Does that become consecrated? So really the question is this, does holiness keep getting passed on? If something is set apart for the Lord, does the next thing that it touched get set apart? Well, if you follow that logically, everything in the whole world will be holy within a few moments because everything touches everything else. So the priests give their answer. Is holiness passed on? No. Correct answer. That's the answer that the law gives us. Haggai moves us on to a second question. Would you you like Haggai as your Bible study leader? Are these the kind of questions you want to be doing in your small groups? Um, But here he goes. He asks the second question. Now, this one is even more obscure. It's about, is defilement passed on? And so in verse 13, sorry, there's a question. If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? And you can read all about defilement um, through touching corpses in those verses in Numbers. Why is this an issue? Why is this an issue to start with? Well, two things. One is that death is the ultimate result of the fall, isn't it? We we die because we're in Adam and we are made alive in Christ. But there's also something very practical going on here. In the heat of the Middle East, when a person died, their body would quickly start to decompose. Now, I looked up on the the WHO website, that is the World Health Organization, just in case you're wondering, um, as, as to what happens if you touch a dead body. And it is not good. A dead body can give all kinds of problems. It can breed all kinds of contagions. And actually, what we find in the law time and time again is instructions for how people can live safely, how they can live well, and how they can not um, catch illnesses, and all these kind of things. So there's a spiritual application here, and a very practical one. And so the answer comes, is defilement passed on? Yes, is the response. If you touch something that is contagious, you can keep passing it on indefinitely. And this is what was happening to the people. So this is really the application. Tom, Thomas Hale says this, the meaning behind the Lord's two questions is this. Holiness is not easily transmitted. Defilement is. It's much easier to fall into sin than to fall into holiness. Therefore, we must all be diligent to guard against all sin. So you see what he's talking about, really? You can't just become holy by mistake. It's something you have to think about. It's something you have to pray about. It's something that's Holy Spirit enabled. But we can and do all drift into sin. That is the basic message of what is going on here. So we move on. And the questions are applied by Haggai in verse 14. You see, what has been happening is the nation has been defining everything because they've been spiraling into sin. 
And just like, you know, like a whirlpool, look at this picture of a whirlpool, it sucks everything in it. And it just goes round and round. The probably only time we see a whirlpool is if you pull the bath plug out, isn't it? But when, even when you see that, you see everything gets sucked down. It all goes down. And that's what happens with defilement, with sin. The minute it starts, we start spiraling downwards. You see, God's people, they, the people of Israel, they were a set-apart people. They had called to be God's holy people. But it wasn't enough just to say, as Israel, we are God's people. They had to live it out. It had to be real. Holiness had to be lived. It had to be demonstrated. Now, we are God's holy people as the church. We are God's forgiven people. We are called by Christ to follow him. But the same thing applies. You know, we can't just say, oh, we're holy because we're, we're the church of Jesus Christ. We actually have to have changed hearts, changed lives, changed responses to God. Before the exile, what was happening is this spiraling of sin resulted in the whole nation being destroyed and taken into exile. At this point in Haggai, as we saw last week, what has happened is it's brought drought upon the land. The blessings that Deuteronomy 28 talks about are being withheld and people are struggling. So what are we to make of this? Our world is a long way from consecrated meat and risks of defilement. We don't think in those terms. But I think really we can apply this by thinking just as the the people of the ancient um, Israelites were called to imitate God, how are we called to imitate Christ? And are we a people committed to holiness? See, Jesus has a lot to say about holiness. The New Testament has a lot to say about holiness. Just look at this from the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but that's a bit of a high calling. It's a big ask, isn't it, to say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Look at what Peter says in his first letter. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so I think as we read the scriptures, what we can't do is say, well, holiness is just some secondary issue. You know, there are some parts of the church that are very keen on holiness, but we're more keen on baptism or other things. And, you know, it, it's not that kind of thing. Holiness is right the way through scripture. Being like God, being like Jesus, imitating him is something that is absolutely key. So how can we define it? Is there a way we can say what a holy people look like? I quite like this quote. Um, Sorry, that's the wrong slide there. Here we are. Louis Palau. He says, holiness means to live in the light with God. To live in the light, not to live in the darkness, not to live in the shadows, but live in the light with God. It means to walk with all we've learned in accordance with his word and all that the Holy Spirit teaches us. Holiness is, in a sense, it's to look at what Jesus did and say, I want to do the same, and I will do the same. And when I can't do the same, I'll ask the Holy Spirit to move within me, to change me, to transform me, so that I can do those things that Jesus did. And what do we see Jesus doing? Well, all the things he did in the Gospels. He taught. He loved people who other people considered were unlovable. He went and retreated and had time with his Heavenly Father. He sacrificed his whole life for the sins of the world. He was obedient to his father's will. He spoke up against religiosity. He healed the sick. He showed mercy. He told the most ridiculous stories, really silly stories, 
when we get his sense of humor to make a point about the kingdom of God. He had dinner with people that nobody else would associate with. He celebrated at weddings. He freed people from the powers of darkness. You see, the list could go on and on and on. But these are the things that Jesus was doing. This is what holiness is about. It's about coming after Jesus and saying, actually, I want to do the same. I want to be that kind of person. When I was young and was learning to play the piano, apologies, I've probably told you this story before, but um, I was always one for shortcuts in learning. Because you put a, a piece of music in front of a six, five, six-year-old, all these dots on the page, and it was like, I have no idea what this means. So I used to sit there, and my mum would sit with me practicing, and I would say to her, just play it for me, will you? And she would sit there, and she would play Scenes at a Farm, or whatever book it was that I was learning from. And I would then copy, and I would play it back. And I learned much quicker by imitating my mum's playing than I did by trying little bit by little bit to work out what was on the page. In a sense, I think that's what holiness is about. It's about looking at the person of Jesus and saying, it's a lot easier, isn't it, to imitate Jesus than it is to have a tick list of legalism and say, well, I must do this, must do this, must do this, must do this. It's an exciting life to follow after somebody. And you know what? Even now, you know, I'm not any longer playing scenes at a farm, but if I want to learn something else on the piano, I don't tend to go to the music first. I tend to listen first and then say, actually, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do that. Do we do that with Jesus? Do we look at the way he lived, the way he, he loved people, the way he cared for people, the passion he has for the kingdom of God? And do we say, actually, I want to be like that? So a number of years ago now, we had Diane Tidball come and speak here, and, and she said something that has always struck with me. She said, holiness is the most fun way to live. And you think, hold on a minute, holiness has got a bit of a bad reputation, hasn't it, for, for not doing things? But actually, holiness is living life to the full. It's doing what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. I have come that they may have life to the full. It's a life that is brimming full of God's opportunities. A life that is brimming full of taking our lead from Jesus himself. So I wonder if this week, if we can try something. You will find yourselves in all kinds of different situations this week. Most of them will be very hot situations, certainly at the beginning of the week, with the temperature rising. Um, how can we try and make sure that we're imitating Jesus in whatever we're doing? Perhaps you come across a situation and your natural self wants to react in some way. Perhaps you want to bite somebody's head off. Perhaps you want to be unkind when actually there's an option to be kind. Perhaps the heat really gets to you and you just become irritable. How can we say, what would Jesus do in that situation? Take a breath and pray, Holy Spirit, enable me to imitate Christ here. Take a breath and say, Holy Spirit, allow me to be an imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holiness is joy. Holiness is lived. But let's contrast that just briefly with a life of defilement. You see, the people in Haggai's day, these Jews who'd returned from Babylon, it was still so tempting to take their cues from elsewhere. Rather than to follow after God, rather than to seek after the law and the ways of God, they could look at the other nations round about and they could start doing their own thing. But the problem was, once you start on that pattern, once you start listening to other voices other than the voice of Jesus, the wool pull kicks in and you start going round and round and it goes down and down. And we can end up very quickly being very self-centered. We can end up doing all the kinds of things that actually we know take us away from God. And in the, the passage we read in verses 15 to 19, it tells the, the sorry account of what had happened already to this defiled people. 
a people who were living away from God. And what was happening was that the blessings of harvest had been taken away. Now, I think actually we live quite removed from our food chain. And I think in many ways, as a society, we're starting to pay the price for that. But we do. We, we just think that food arrives on the shelves and we don't know quite where it comes from. But these were people who lived very close to the land. And if the harvest failed, things got really difficult. So look at verse 16. When they look at the harvest, there was half amount of the, the grain that they expected. Two-fifths of the amount of wine. There was mildew, blight, and hail that had impacted the harvest. And by verse 19, there was literally nothing left. This is what the spiraling had done. It had taken them away from the blessings of God. So what are the blessings of holiness? I think I've got my slides all in the wrong order here. Here we go. Blessings of holiness. You know, there are blessings of holiness in our life as well. There are things that can only come to us as we imitate Jesus that, that, that don't come by any other route. Just as in the ancient times, there were blessings that were associated with obedience. So we too, we gain things in our lives as Christians when we seek to live a Jesus-centered life. Kathy Howard, who is a, an author and blogger, she gives um, five, four, five reasons here um, to, to seek after the holiness of life. You, you can perhaps look some of these passages up. I'll just read them. Holiness fosters intimacy with God and builds spiritual strength and stability. Do you want to have an intimate relationship with God? Is that something we desire? Then imitate Jesus. Let's, let's be those who imitate him. Holy living makes us useful and effective for God's purposes. And there again, a reference to 2 Timothy. Our holy life causes people around us to glorify God. Holiness builds peace with God. A holy life pleases God and produces fruit. We had a leaders meeting on Thursday evening and John was leading us in some devotions at the start of that, just talking about fruitfulness. Are we producing fruit? Are we Christians today who through our imitation of Jesus are producing fruit? If you were with us yesterday, um, Chris has already mentioned um, this morning that Jonathan took us through Isaiah 43 about forgetting the former things, about the streams flowing and it was interesting, we, we looked very briefly at the end of the session about how the, the, the waters that flow in Isaiah are waters for drinking. They're clean water. They're waters of purity. Now, I hope it in our hearts today that we have a real desire to see God do a new thing. As I look out on our nation, as I look out on our world, we need a renewal of the church, absolutely. We need a revival in our day, the likes of which we haven't seen up until now. If not, the spiritual life of our communities is, is not going anywhere, is it? I think Jonathan referenced yesterday there are 12,000 people in Lim who are not attached to any church or Christian community. 12,000 people, there's perhaps 500 of us who are attached in some way to churches. That's a big mission field. But you see, mission and holiness have to go hand in hand. If the church is not renewed within, if we are not renewed to be imitators of Christ, then we will not be very good at doing mission. The two have to go hand in hand. John Wesley, the, the great 18th century preacher, evangelist, revivalist, he did all kinds of things, John Wesley. He was one of the most fascinating people, I think, ever to have lived in this country. Read up about him. You will enjoy seeing all the things that he got up to. But he was passionate about holiness because he saw that when the church was imitating Christ, the blessings of the Spirit came upon the church. And as the blessings of the Spirit came, as the power of the Spirit came, then people got saved. Then people started to turn their lives over to Jesus. 
And John Wesley said this, I continue to dream and pray about a revival of holiness in our day that moves forth in mission and creates authentic community in which each person can be unleashed through the empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. To imitate Christ, to be like him, so that our communities can be revived. Is that our prayer today? As we leave this very short book of Haggai, as we go into the summer, is it the cry of our hearts that actually we will be those who imitate Christ so that we can display him to the people around about us? We'll have a lot to say in the autumn about vision, about what that means practically, but it's got to start within. So can I encourage us, use this summertime, perhaps when things are a bit quieter, to say, how can I imitate Jesus? How can I become the person that God has created me to be in his creational intentions? I like those, those words. Let's pray. I'll just read that quote again as we pray. I continue to dream and pray about a revival of holiness in our day that moves forth in mission and creates authentic community in which each person can be unleashed through the empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. And Lord, we pray for that in our day. Lord, we pray that you will give us a passion for holiness, a passion to be like you, a passion to seek after you, not to get drawn into a whirlpool of sin and defilement. And Lord, give us the courage, perhaps today in our own lives, where we realize that our holiness is, is, is a long way off, that we're, that we're actually living in ways that are, are not in accordance with what you would have us do. Give us the courage to come to you. Give us the courage to return, like the prodigal, and to come to you, and we will find your arms wide open to welcome us back. So Lord, yeah, we just pray this summer that you would be doing a work deep inside of us. Help us to become more and more like you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.